of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Jeremiah chapter 10. Hear what the Lord says to you, people of Israel. This is what the Lord says. Do not learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by signs in the heavens, though the nations are terrified by them. For the practices of the peoples are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest, and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails, so that it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. No one is like you, Lord. You are great, and your name is mighty in power. Who should not fear you, King of the nations? This is your due. Among all the wise leaders of the nations, and in all their kingdoms, there is no one like you. They are senseless and foolish. They are taught by worthless wooden idols. Hammered silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. What the craftsman and goldsmith have made is then dressed in blue and purple, all made by skilled workers. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal King. When he is angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure his wrath. Tell them this. These gods, who did not make the heavens and the earth, will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. But God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. When he thunders, the waters in the heavens roar. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. Everyone is senseless and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is shamed by his idols. The images he makes are a fraud. They have no breath in them. They are worthless, the objects of mockery. When their judgment comes, they will perish. He who is the portion of Jacob is not like these, for he is the maker of all things, including Israel, the people of his inheritance, The Lord Almighty is his name. Gather up your belongings to leave the land, you who live under siege. For this is what the Lord says. At this time, I will hurl out those who live in this land. I will bring distress on them so that they may be captured. Woe to me because of my injury. My wound is incurable. 
Yet I said to myself, this is my sickness and I must endure it. My tent is destroyed. All its ropes are snapped. My children are gone from me and are no more. No one is left now to pitch my tent or to set up my shelter. The shepherds are senseless and do not inquire of the Lord. So they do not prosper and all their flock is scattered. Listen, the report is coming. A great commotion from the land of the north. It will make the towns of Judah desolate, a haunt of jackals. Lord, I know that people's lives are not their own. It is not for them to direct their steps. Discipline me, Lord, but only in due measure, not in your anger, or you will reduce me to nothing. Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not acknowledge you, on the peoples who do not call on your name. For they have devoured Jacob, they have devoured him completely and destroyed his homeland. Thank you, Chris, for a long reading. And I do like flower arranging. I don't think there's anything wrong with this. Actually, I like arranging things up here, too. That's annoying me. That's better. Right, we're in Jeremiah 10, and that's on page 769, if you've still got your Bibles open to follow where we're going. And... um, Jeremiah 10 is a bit of an odd chapter. It's a sort of um, Reader's Digest version of the rest of Jeremiah. Oops, go down a bit. There we go. Uh, it's a sort of summary of everything that we've got uh, in the rest of the book, or some of the stuff that we've looked at so far, all in that those 25 verses. Uh, and that means that this evening I'm going to sort of cross-refer to some of the other sermons that we've already had on Jeremiah, otherwise I'd be repeating a lot of things so uh, I will pick those up as we go along and we're going to pick out three main themes from this chapter there's lots we could pick up but these are the three so we're going to think about um, the state we're in the situation the people were in uh, and then we're going to look at how they responded how we might cope with those sorts of challenges and then finally we're going to look at what a Christian response would be to the same situation And every one of those topics, although they're set, you know, hundreds of years ago, are still just as relevant to us today. So first of all, let's just think about uh, the people then. And as you look at that chapter, you get a pretty clear message that there are two big worries in people's lives. If you like, they're worried I was trying to way of simplifying this, and I guess you could say, well, they're worried about this world, and they're worried about the next. Sort of two pretty big topics there that they're fretting over. Um, the this world problem is what's going to happen to them here and now. And, and we've heard before, uh, Israel's under threat. It's under threat from the north, from Babylon and Syria between them, uh, and from the south, from Egypt. <clears throat> And you look at verse 17 there, and verse 17 talks about a siege. So there's this country stuck in the middle of this regional power play. And the people know 
that actually this is their future. I mean, this is modern racker, I think. But this is the future that they're worrying about. That if they make the wrong decision, if they back the wrong horse, they can expect to be attacked, besieged, be killed. Their families are going to be exiled. People were genuinely, I guess, scared about what was coming their way and what they and their families could look forward to. And we're not going to dwell on all the verses, but just look at verses 19 to 22 for a minute. And you see that's written as a lament. And it's as though Jerusalem herself is singing these words. Woe to me because of my injury. My children are gone from me and are no more. That's what the people know is coming to them. And Phil spoke more about that in his first sermon. So that's their number one worry, the here and now. How are they going to cope with everything that's, that's going on? But they've also got a, something else to worry about. They're worried uh, about, if you like, what's happening next. Almost the supernatural. Verse 2, you see that? It says there have been signs in the heavens. And you might think, well, that's a bit primitive, signs in the heavens. Why are they worrying about that? Well, this is a picture of a blood moon over Jerusalem. I didn't know about this till I was sort of looking for, for interesting pictures. Um, there have been blood moons over Jerusalem coinciding with the Jewish religious feasts for about the last 10 years, on and off. And it's caused a huge amount of, of concern and interest uh, in Jerusalem. Now, this is photoshopped, this picture. It's not quite as dramatic as that, but it's still pretty dramatic and that's scary isn't it we see things like that even now we worry what does that mean and we know that the priests were useless look at verse 21 says the shepherds do not inquire of the lord and that was what phil was talking about last week the church leaders if you want to use today's expression were really just telling people Whatever they thought, it was human wisdom, may not even have been wisdom. Certainly wasn't God's. And there wasn't anything distinctive in that. There was no clear voice of God speaking to the people. So that's our starting point, if you like. We've got people with real-life worries, worrying about their situation right now and worrying about the wider picture, their bigger future. And the reason I've sort of dwelled on that a little bit is I think it's really easy to read this sort of chapter in the 21st century, whatever we're in, with all our education, and be a bit condescending about how these people were behaving. And we can say, well, they were the people of God, surely they knew. But they were just ordinary people. They were just people like you and me with really big problems on their plate. And I think we can be a bit sanctimonious when we judge these folk and say, no, 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 ordinary folk with really big issues. And, of course, lots of us have got big issues in our lives too, haven't we? You may still be worrying about Brexit if you've got the energy. Uh, Terrorist attacks, you know, if you go to London now, you'll see signs of counter-terrorism measures everywhere. Terrorism is a 
is a worry, isn't it? We have our health worries, we worry about money, we worry about exams, our future, all sorts of things. And of course, we worry about what happens next? What happens when I die? Is there more to life than this? Is the question that Alpha asks, isn't it? So let's not, let's not sort of sit in judgment of these people. Let's instead see what we can learn from the passage and how Jeremiah deals with it. So the question then is, how did these people cope? They have these, these big concerns, just as we do. How did they deal with it? Well, I think they probably did just what we do. I think each one of us probably does the same. And that is, we look around and see how other people cope. And we look for people who seem to be successful, who seem to be getting on in life. Uh, Maybe we go on social media, maybe we Google for advice, maybe we just listen to friends, maybe we buy self-help books. I don't know what we do. But we look at ways of coping. Uh, Effectively, we're just following the herd, aren't we? We're following what other people do uh, and say. And that's exactly what's happening here. It's described slightly differently, but if you look at verse 2, very early on in the passage Chris read, uh, Jeremiah says, you are following the ways of the nations. Everyone around these people, probably from the successful nations, were doing very well, apparently. Whatever attitude these people had to God in the other nations, well, that seemed to work. So we just... Take that on board. As Matt said the other day, they were diverted and they drifted away, and that's easy to do. None of us, I don't think, can ever be confident that we won't do the same. Because this isn't a binary thing, isn't it? We don't sort of sit down and say one day, I'm going to follow God, and next day, well, I might take on a little bit of that. We all take on the attitudes and ways of thinking about uh, our society Uh, And so we need to be discerning, don't we? We need to say, where am I getting that viewpoint from? You know, I think it's fascinating recently, the big push for veganism. Well, hang on, where's where's that coming from? What's behind it? Maybe good, maybe bad, I don't know. But these things pop up, don't they? And we absorb them. So this chapter is a warning for us to think, well, where do we go to for wisdom in life? Jeremiah says... Do not copy the ways of the nations. That's not a bad little strap line, just remember, is it? Now then, in this situation, what did it actually mean for them? In those days, what did that turn into? Well, you can sort of see from the, uh, the heading in the, in the service sheet that in Jeremiah 10, that turns into idol worship. Now, idol worship is a really odd thing. And I think it's difficult to get our head around it. Let's look at some things that in Jeremiah 10, it isn't. So in Jeremiah 10, idol worship is nothing to do with pop idols, mainly because I presume they didn't exist in those days. It is nothing to do with venerating statues, whether it's the Virgin Mary or anything else. That's the symbol. It's nothing to do with that. You might be surprised to know that Jeremiah 10 is nothing to do with Christmas trees. But most Jehovah's Witnesses think it is. But honestly, taking down a tree and putting gold and silver on it is nothing to do with Christmas trees. So it's not Christmas trees. And neither is it to do with that thing that can maybe take over your life. Now, Matt talked about that in his sermon and that role of idols, and that's perfectly right. 
But in this context, something slightly different uh, is, is going on. Because what was happening is people were buying stuff and they were somehow making this stuff supernatural. They were creating their own gods. You can see that. Look at verse 3. We cut the tree down, shape it with a chisel. Verses 8 and 9, we had silver, we had gold, we had clothes. Uh, 14 and 15, verses 14 and 15, talk about the goldsmiths working on them. Um, it sounds all very odd. So I did a little bit of research. If ever you want a challenge, you go into the Christian bookshop and you say to David, the manager, can you find me a book on idol worship, real idol worship? And yes, he found one. And what I learned was that actually this is a form of fetishism, which is quite a difficult word to say. Fetishism is when you take an object and you make it your God. And there's actually a modern example of it. And if you want to get an idea of what people were doing, this is it. It's voodoo. Sounds extraordinary, isn't it? But you take an object and you make it God. There's an advert. I'm not going to leave this up for very long, but it just does illustrate the point. Voodoo lose office voodoo kit. That's amazing, isn't it? You take charge of your office with the office voodoo doll. Well, we won't dwell on that. But that is what the people were doing. They were, that had exactly explained it. It was a way of taking charge. I'm creating my own God and I am going to tell it what to do. That is the attitude of the people who Jeremiah was talking to. And I was trying to work out how that principle applies now. Who do we know who would have that sort of attitude? Because we don't come across voodoo very much, do we? But we do come across people who absolutely have no place for God in their lives at all and say, no, man is the center. I am in charge. And many of you, especially if you're at college, will be uh, studying or, or sitting alongside people who are quite aggressive atheists or maybe just agnostic or maybe just don't really care. But all those attitudes are really no different from voodoo. They're saying... God is not in charge, I am. That's the decision that people had made in Jeremiah's time, and it's a decision that people still make. Well, we need to see things differently. I guess we're all very uh, familiar with this picture of the earth taken from Apollo 8. So I was trying to find a different view of the world and came across this one, which some of you will know, but I'd never come across it before. This is a picture taken from Voyager as it passed through Saturn. And the, uh, the, the, the crew, not the crew, the, the, the ground crew, um, were persuaded to turn the cameras round and take a view of the Earth from hundreds of thousands of miles away, a view that had never, ever been seen before. And if you can just see that little blue dot, that little blue marble dangling in the middle of the Milky Way, that's the Earth seen in a way, certainly, that I'd never seen it before. And that's what's happening in Jeremiah 10. Because when we turn to God, Paul says, 1 Corinthians, he says, when we turn to God, when we trust in Jesus, then we have the mind of Christ. And suddenly we begin to see the world through his eyes, from his perspective. And that's what we're seeing in Jeremiah 10. We're seeing a tilting round. The cameras have been switched round and we're going to see the world differently. 
And what's going to happen is Jeremiah is first of all going to sort of destroy people's worldview and then give them another perspective. So firstly, he tells them what should be obvious, that their so-called gods are just lumps of wood dressed up in gold and expensive clothes. That's what verse 3 says, isn't it? Uh, And they're incapable of moving. That's verse 5. In fact, they're just scarecrows in a cucumber field. Quite difficult to find a picture of a scarecrow in a cucumber field, but this apparently is a scarecrow in a cucumber field. And it looks pretty useless, doesn't it? It's a brilliant image, isn't it? So he's saying, there is no logic to your belief system. It's just based on wishful thinking and deception. So firstly, Jeremiah challenges that view, and he says, this is nonsense. And then he presents them with a much better picture. He reminds them that there's a creator God. That's verse 12, isn't it? God made the earth by his power. We read it earlier, didn't we? He made the heavens. Where all these signs that you've been worrying about, God made those. In fact, Jeremiah says he created the world and even the skills of the people who made your idols. God made those too. That's verse 16. He's the maker of everything. So your view doesn't make sense, but here's a bit of you. A creator God who made everything, a creator God who's acted in the past. I used a bit of Exodus last week. I couldn't resist the pictures. They're so good, aren't they? But he reminds them that uh, God has acted in their past, in their history. Verse Verse 7, Israel is his inheritance. Verse 16, he refers to God as king of the nations. Surely a reminder to folk of what God has done in their past, defeating the nations. This is uh, uh, Moses romping through the Red Sea, uh, getting away from, from Pharaoh. But God has acted in the past, and the people are reminded of that in that phrase, king of the nations. And that's all good news. But there's a downside as well. He reminds them that there are consequences for rejecting God. Verse 6 and 7, they say that the true God is to be respected and feared and we should be worried about his anger. It's verse 10. Verse 25 comes back to that same idea, isn't it? God's wrath poured out on nations who do not acknowledge him. Presumably the very nations that these people are, are copying. Now, Phil talked about judgment a couple of weeks ago and you might want to. Uh, listen to that sermon if, if, if you weren't there. But the point is that this is personal to each one of us. Although this is on a nation, look at verse 19. This is my fault. This is my sickness. I must endure it. We have to boil this down sooner or later to an individual response. How we, me, I think and behave. And actually, you put that all together, and you're just hearing the gospel, the good news, aren't you? God loves us. If we turn to him, we will be safe. We do escape the just punishment that the otherwise deserve. And because of Jesus, we can go further than Jeremiah does, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Can't we? We know that God sent himself to the world in the form of Jesus. We know he took the punishment that is foreshadowed in this passage. 
we know that put us right with God. That was something Jeremiah didn't know and couldn't know. But the response that Jeremiah is looking for is exactly the same as the one we need to think about now. Each one of us needs to acknowledge there is a God greater than us and that we need to turn to him. So that was Jeremiah sort of tilting the camera around and saying, no, let's have a look at the world in a different way because this is actually where mankind sits. But there's a little bit more. This is Judith and me holding hands. Did you go make a rude noise? <laughs> when I was, um, I, I was putting this sermon together, you know how things come together? Maybe sometimes a, uh, the Spirit is leading you, I don't know. But I was putting this sermon together and I read this uh, in my morning prayers. I use a sort of, um, there's a sort of Church of England um, study guide that's actually going through Jeremiah at the moment. But uh, this is um, the entry for Friday the 1st of March. It's by Jan McFarlane, who's the Bishop of Repton. And this is what she says. Jesus meets his disciples personally and intimately. Our faith must be based not on the hearsay of others, not by simply knowing the story of Jesus, but through a personal encounter with him. You see, it's not enough just to know about Christianity. We need to know the person behind it. And that's why at the end of this chapter, we get this personal testimony from Jeremiah. Just look with me at verse 23. Jeremiah says, I know, O Lord, that my life is not my own. It is not for me to direct my steps. (laughs) We all need bit of direction sometimes, don't we? But Jeremiah is saying, I can trust God to look after me and direct my ways. And he looks at these other folk in Jerusalem, or maybe he talk, looks at the other folk uh, around us now and say, you know, you don't need to take control. You really don't. God's in control if only you'll let him. And that attitude, it isn't a fatalistic one. It isn't just saying, well, I'll just let get on with it. Let God get on with it. I think instead it's a great comfort and it's a source of freedom, isn't it? That the great creator God is interested in each one of us. In fact, he loves us so much that Jeremiah can even trust God to discipline him. I'm not very good at discipline, not very good at handling it. Jeremiah turns to God and says, I know I can trust you to discipline me and correct me. That's verse 24, isn't it? And uh, Tim said this morning, and I'd already written this, so it must be important, because uh, we're both saying the same thing. But when we pray the Lord's Prayer, one of the opening things we say is, your will be done. Isn't it? We are praying Jeremiah's prayer that God will direct our steps. It's very different to these idol worshippers, isn't it? Or the folk who simply do not want God in their lives. It's a completely different uh, point of view, if you like. And again, we've got that advantage on Jeremiah. We know that God sent his son to die for us. We know we can receive his Holy Spirit. We know we can know Jesus. We can know his love. And we know that perfect peace is found in not trying to change our lives, but in submission to the Lord Jesus. That was Jeremiah's personal testimony. He knows the living God. 
And the question is whether we can all say the same for ourselves individually, isn't it? Because that's Jeremiah 10, big challenge. He says, we're in a mess, not just now, but for eternity. He says, you can't sort it out. We need to let God into our lives and see the world properly. And if we don't, well, sooner or later we will face judgment. That gavel will fall. But if we trust in the Lord, he will direct our steps and we are safe for him. That's an individual decision that each one of us needs to take. I'm going to finish with a prayer and then Nigel is uh, going to continue in prayer. But I'm going to end with a prayer written by um, St. Augustine in the 5th century, which uh, just seems to capture some of what Jeremiah has been saying. So let me uh, finish with this and then Nigel will uh, come and pray. That's what Augustine wrote. Lord, you are the light of the minds who know you, the life of the souls who love you, and the strength of the souls who serve you. Help us to know you that we may truly love you, so to love you that we may, make, that we may fully serve you, whose service is perfect freedom. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.